As you could note in the prayer that I just offered this morning, we're taking a break from the Gospel of John as we will through the end of the year. It seems strange for me to say that, doesn't it? We're nearly at the last month of the uh, year. We're almost to the end. It feels like we were just in January. When I say that, I understand. I talk like an old man. <laughs> they say that the days sometimes go slowly, but the years and the months go by quickly. And that's really true. But we're glad this morning to turn then to a chapter of the Bible and a portion of that chapter in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at some portions of the narrative about the coming of Jesus in the weeks leading up to the day that in our culture we celebrate Christmas. And this morning we're looking specifically at Luke chapter 1 verses 46 uh, through 55, or rather 56. And this is the song that Mary sang after two things occur earlier in Luke chapter 1. First, there is an angel that appears to Mary and says, you will be the one through whom the Messiah will come. And then the angel says a second thing, and that is that her cousin Mary will also bear a child, even though Elizabeth is old. And so these two things go together, and as Mary listens to this news about Elizabeth, she is moved to go to Elizabeth to see this as a confirming evidence that God's Word is true. And so immediately before this song that Mary sings, Mary visits Elizabeth. She sees that God's promise to Elizabeth is true. Elizabeth testifies that when Mary, Mary's voice is heard by Elizabeth, the baby who will be John the Baptist leaps in her womb for joy to hear the sound of the mother of our Lord. And then we pick up the words of the gospel writer at verse 46 where we read these words. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked in the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. I began this series of sermons about the coming of our Savior by telling you about a man that none of you know. When I was in middle school, our church did not have a boys club or any sort of club equivalent to that, so I went to a church in a neighboring community. And in that neighboring community, in the 6th and 7th and 8th grade group, the oldest group for boys club, there was a man that you might not even notice if you didn't know the work he did with those boys, he was a man who worked in the local grocery store. He was in charge of produce. And that man lived a relatively humble life. 
He went to work every day. The grocery store was open, stocking the produce. He went home at night, cared for his wife and his couple of kids. And the place in which he really invested was in the lives of these boys who came to Boys Club in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Now, if you're in that age group this morning, I will tell you from my own experience, even though it's been a number of years ago, those can be very difficult times. You're trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to figure out your relationships with other people. Maybe you're even struggling some and understanding your place in this world. And this man, who will go nameless, although I know his name, was such an incredible blessing to me because not only in what he said, but in the way he interacted with me, it was clear in his humility, in the way that he went about his life, that the Spirit of Jesus Christ was powerfully at work. To say it differently, the way of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was clearly evident in his life. Not because he had some great job that people would recognize him for. I imagine at some point when he dies, his obituary will not contain all sorts of praise from people who are famous. He will simply note, at least for me, that this man was a man who lived humbly as characteristic of the kingdom of God. The reason I start this series of sermons leading up to Christmas with the example of this man is because this song that we have here in Luke chapter 1 has very much the same tone. And that is in the Christian church, within the kingdom of God, God moves greatness through humility. It is the nature of the way that Jesus came into the world, and it is the way in which the kingdom of Jesus Christ works. And even if that might not sound life-changing to you, maybe it does. I don't want to pull back from how striking that might be, that God works great things through humility. Here's the thing I want to add on to that. That not only does God do great things through humility, but that dynamic is reason for the greatest joy. And the point of this morning's sermon is a very simple one. And this is what I hope will happen as you leave this place of worship this morning. That you will similarly have a joy that comes from understanding the dynamic of the kingdom of God. That God moves greatness through humility. Let me explain that to you this morning. There are three things I want to explain. The first comes in verses 46 through 49, where Mary notes that the work of God, the way God works, working greatness through humility, is a work that she sees personally. You will not be surprised when I say to you that what has happened to Mary in these verses that precede this song has a profound effect on her. I've already noted to you, she's heard from the angel, the promise that she will bear Jesus the Messiah. She's also heard the promise that Elizabeth will bear a son, even though she is an old woman. And Mary is moved to rejoice. Mary is overwhelmed by the notion that a God could do these kinds of things. And the joy of this passage starts with the effect that Mary senses in her own hearts, because Mary views herself as lowly and unimportant. 
She herself is not a great woman. She's no princess. She's no queen. She's nobody that the world around her would view as someone with power. She's very likely this morning in this passage a teenager, a teenager for humble circumstances. And Mary, therefore, senses the dynamic that God moves greatness through humility first in the way that she talks about that working in her own heart. You'll notice in verse 46, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She notes my soul and my spirit because she is talking about something that is deeply personal, that is happening within her. God has been gracious according to verse 48 in looking upon his lowly servant. She calls herself a bondswoman or literally a female slave. If there were another way for her to describe her loneliness and humility, she would have. She's using every word that she can imagine. Lowly estate is a suitable description of a woman who is barren. And it certainly applies, at least it had in the past to Elizabeth, but Mary specifically applies that to herself because she wants the song to reflect the contrast between the greatness of what God is doing and somebody who is lowly and humble, somebody in her social position. And the first thing that she says about this contrast between greatness moved through humility is that she says, I can see that in my own life. I see what God is doing. Second, she says, and I see that this is a pattern in the way that God has worked in others like her. What is deep within Mary's heart is also found in other places in the Scripture. And in just a moment, I'm going to note for you the way in which Mary connects her own circumstances with others who have been in similar circumstances in other places in biblical history. But there seems to be an overt parallel, rough somewhat, but yet I think discernible, between 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and the song of praise that Baron Hannah offers to the Lord, and then this song of praise that we have here in Luke chapter 1. In both places, you have someone who does not have a child receiving the news that they will receive a child from the Lord, and they are overjoyed. Even further, I want you to see that Mary's song of praise in this chapter is made up almost entirely of quotes from the Old Testament. This is like what happens to you, perhaps, if you memorize a passage of Scripture and you're walking through the day and something happens and you remind yourself, you say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Or maybe you say to yourself, the Lord is my strength and my song. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength. Who shall I be afraid? Those words come flooding back into your mind because they are passages of Scripture that help you understand the circumstances in which you find yourself. 
And Mary is doing the same thing here. She can find no greater way to express her joy than to string together a series of quotations from the Old Testament. She's literally singing God's word back to him. As if to say, what you said is true. They were true in the Old Testament. They're true now. I can see them applied in my circumstances. This is the way you've always worked, and I can see you working in me now. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And all of these quotes, again, are used to contrast the greatness of what God is doing in the humility of who Mary perceives herself to be. And the third way in which she speaks of the way that God is working as affecting her personally is not only she says, I see it, I see that you've always worked this way, she also says in her song, and I see that this is just the beginning of a great thing. There is a unique parallel in one of the verses of this song If you'll notice, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices. Those two words about rejoicing are meant to be in parallel, and yet they, if I can be a little bit bit nerdy here, they're two very different verb tenses. One is, I'm doing it right now, and I'm doing it with the fullness of who I am. And one is, I'm anticipating this going on forever and ever. I rejoice now, and I'm going to continue to rejoice. I rejoice a long time. My rejoicing now is the only beginning of great rejoicing, which is to come. This is not the end of this song. It's merely the beginning. And Mary says, not only do I find that joy in operation in my own heart, I see that joy in the way that you've always worked, being great, bringing great things from those who are humble. And now I see what you're doing now, what I'm singing about is simply the beginning for what you will do in my life and for future generations. Look at verse 49. She says, from now on many generations will call me blessed because of the power of God who's done a mighty thing in Mary as one who fears him. The emphasis here is on the power of God to work for his people. This is the power of God to work in his people. She notes in verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The holy that she notes there is not only a moral quality, it's to say that he is set apart by his almighty power. He is unlike anyone else. He can do things like no one else does. What does God do that is unlike what anyone else does? It is this dynamic that God brings great things out of humility, out of those who are lowly, those who seem despised, those who seem almost unusable. God works to do great things. Now, if up to this point in this sermon, in a moment I'm going to go on to the next major thing I want to tell you. This sermon seems a little detached for you. I want to bring you into a conversation I had recently with somebody I've been coming to know. And if you're listening this morning, you'll know who you are. We've been talking for some time over a number of months. And the last time I talked to him, he noted to me that he was interested in my opinion about what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening to Israel. 
And the conversation wound around to the question of what really is the difference between Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. I said, if you want to understand the difference between Islam and Christianity, it comes down to this dynamic. The Islamic faith works change from the outside in. It is about forcing, compelling someone else to do. It is less about deep conviction. It is about conformity. It's about making sure it happens in the way that whoever has the power brings it about the way they want. Christianity, however, works from the inside out. In the Christian faith, God changes our hearts by the power of the Spirit of Christ and transforms us first in the inside, and then our life externally begins to reflect what God has done inside. What's necessary in Islam, then, is to have the power. That is the dynamic necessary in Islam, to have the power, whether it's your particular sect of Islam, you need the power, or if it's in a nation, you need the power to bring about Islamic, the Islamic way of life. But in Christianity, I told my friend, there's a different dynamic. It's not that Christians are disinterested in power, that Christians don't participate in the political process, that we don't care about freedom, we care about all those things. But the fundamental way in which Christianity works is different. We're not seeking power to impose ourselves and our beliefs on others. We're seeking the internal change by the power of Christ that actually transforms life and communities and nations and the world. And the way in which that is most clearly demonstrated is in the way that God works in history. Using those who are lowly, those who are humble, those who are almost looked past in order to move great things. Which brings me to the second way that we see that God works great things through humility. If Mary says, I can see that personally in the way that you are working in my life, I want you to see in verses 50 through 53 that that way of working is pervasive. It's not just from Mary. She has noted, I have seen that in other women who are in similar positions in the past in the Old Testament. Now as she sings in verses 50 through 53, she says that I can see throughout the entirety of Scripture that is the way that you work. If you look there in verse 50, it says, And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has set away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There's a very good argument that what the song leads to, crescendos to, is that word mercy that is found in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Old Testament in Greek, this mercy is translated 
with an idea of God's faithfulness to his people over and over and over. And that is not a new idea. It is a way of introducing who receives this power applied. It is shown to those who fear him. It has been demonstrated over and over and over to his people. Those that God cares for and loves receive this mercy. That covenant faithfulness is from generation to generation. And that verse, with that mercy, brings into sharp focus the truth that Mary is singing that as God's faithfulness to his people is not about the greatness of his people. Instead, it is about the greatness of who God is. God has never chosen his people based on the greatness of who they were or what they could bring to him. Instead, God works in people almost intentionally. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sympathetic to the fact that some of you are struggling with colds. I seem to have lost my voice for a second. All right, there we go. God intentionally seems to contrast the greatness of his power with the weakness of those that he works in. He uses his power to reverse our expectations. And then there's one more thing I want you to see in verses 54 and 55. That is the way that God works is proven. The last couple of verses are meant to emphasize something very important about this God. That he moves this greatness from the lowly. The way Mary can know this is the way God works, the way that God will work through the son who is in her womb. And that is how God has worked through the people of Israel throughout history. Again, if you look back over the nation of Israel, they were never considered a world power, at least not like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. They were a small country that was very often under the control of another power. And yet through this little nation, this small people, the ones that God says in Deuteronomy, he did not choose because of the greatness of who they were. These are the ones he can and does use. He brings greatness from the lowly. This morning, as I think about that with you, I want to make two applications. And I want to be brief and sort of to the point partially because I want you to understand and partially because I want to preserve my voice. The first application I want to make for you is a historical one. And I want to read to you a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. If you're familiar with him, you will know all that he contested about the Christian faith. And among all the things he did not like about Christianity was this. He says, Christianity has taken the part... Christianity has taken the part, that is, preferred the part of all the weak. Christianity has preferred the low, 
those the rest of society would consider the botched. It is made an ideal out of the antagonism to all the self-preservation instincts of sound life. Now, if that quote is hard to understand, let me just put it this way. Christianity is based on the notion that it is from the lowly that God does great things. It is based on the notion that from the weak, the vulnerable, the ones who are not strong, God does bring greatness. And Christianity does so because our faith is founded in what to much of the world appears to be weakness. This is what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and following. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. I read that rather quickly, but I want to simply explain two things about that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First, Paul says very clearly that the nature of Christianity is that God will use those who are lowly and despised, what I've captured under the word humble, in order to do great things. Why? In order to demonstrate that the power belongs to God and Jesus Christ and not to us. Praise the Lord. Because if it is necessary for us to bring about great things by our power, we will have two reactions. First, when things go well, we will be what? Proud. And when things go very badly, how will we respond? We will despair. But if God intentionally uses those who are lowly in order to highlight the greatness of his power, then there is no reason for us to fear or to hesitate or to fall back. It is to simply follow our Savior Jesus Christ and to trust in his power and to do what he calls us to and to trust that he will do great things. My sermon this morning is not a call to you to do great things. My call to you is to trust in Jesus Christ who will do great things through you. Do you believe that? One is moralism. The second is Christianity. The first one ought to discourage you. The second one should fill you with hope. Which secondly, and this is a very specific application, and one I've already led to, I want you to see that God can work through you. I mean that. You might be saying in your mind at this point, but you have no idea who I am. I've got all these things that would keep that from happening. <laughs> I've got my natural weaknesses. I also have my own sinful proclivities. I have a history. All those things, I cannot believe that God is able to work through you. If you wonder whether God can work through you, that may not be a sign of faith. If, however, you believe that the power of God can work in you both to transform you 
and to do great things through you, that is genuine faith. Because at the very heart of this passage, and here's where I want to end, I want you to see this, that God bringing, moving great things through the humble is not only true about Mary, it is not only true about us, it is the very nature of Christ coming into this world. Later on, when we hear the Magi coming, where do they go? They go to King Herod. Why do they go to King Herod? Because they assume one who was born king of the Jews who would be born where? In a palace. He would be royalty. There would be shouts of joy. There would be parades. There would be trumpet calls. The son of the king has been born. Instead, the Magi go to the lowliest place imaginable, a cattle stall where animals feed and live, dark, probably smelly, the most common place a baby could be born. Why? In order to emphasize to us this central truth, those things that we value most highly, that our culture values the power that we believe will bring about great things is not inherent to the gospel. In fact, it is in opposition. By the nature of the coming of Jesus Christ, we are to know that God will move great things through the humble. That was true for Jesus, and therefore it must be true of his kingdom. And if that is true, then every single one of us, no matter what our place, can leave here this morning with the greatest possible joy. Because of all the places in your life where you've made mistakes and messed up, you're naturally limited, you're not as smart as other people, you don't have as many opportunities as others, whatever it is. That is a natural limitation in your life. Here's the good news for you this morning. That does not limit our God. Not at all. Sing for joy with Mary in the kingdom of God because God is moving great things to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning that the way in which your kingdom works is the opposite of what we often expect. It is not a call this morning not to try to influence and work and do our best. Father, we want to do that. We want to be active on our communities. We want to bring about justice in our world. We want to be involved in arts, in the arts. We want to be involved in education and politics. We want to be involved in these things at the highest level. The call in your word this morning is not to indifference, it is to excellence, but it is excellence with the right kind of hope. And that is that our hope is not in our strength, it is the power of Jesus Christ at work in us. May the nature of his coming and what that says about his kingdom as a whole Transform us as your people. That in this community, within this church, we would know, be known as people who are humbled 
and yet expect the greatest work of God to occur. Because we know the song of Mary, and we rejoice with her, and we sing and praise to our God that you do great things. Father, we offer to you our hearts and the entirety of our lives as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.